Breaking the Glass Slipper, we believe it is important to have conversations about women and issues of intersectional feminism within science fiction, fantasy and horror. To continue to do so, we need your help. Please consider supporting us on Patreon. Join the conversation by following us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Welcome to Breaking the Glass Slipper. I'm Megan Lee. And I'm Charlotte Bond. Technological advances are incredible. Just think... The phone in your pocket is infinitely more powerful than the computers that first sent spaceships to the moon. Technology has given us basic things we take for granted, like running water and electricity, to more modern inventions such as the internet, surgical robots and automated vacuum cleaners. We are living longer, easier lives with the help of technology. But is there a line we aren't meant to cross when it comes to technology? As technology improves, we inevitably face change. As humans, while we crave improvement and change, we also fear it. When scientists first invented CRISPR, for example, the the sky appeared to be the limit. But what if a genetically modified wheat that was resistant to most crop diseases caused an unintended side effect? How do we know what will happen when a new technology is unleashed on the world? We don't. But science fiction writers do love to speculate. In this episode, we are joined by Sarah Pinsker, who explores the anxieties of technological advancement in her latest novel, We Are Satellites. Welcome, Sarah. Thank you for having me. So would you like to introduce yourself to our listeners? Sure. Um, My name is Sarah Pinsker. I write science fiction, fantasy, and sometimes a little bit of realist stuff. And sometimes a little bit of horror. And I've got like upwards of 50 uh, short stories published. I have a collection from Small Beer called Sooner or Later Everything Falls into the Sea. Two novels from Berkeley. Uh, One is A Song for a New Day, which won the Nebula last year. And then the new one is We Are Satellites. Yes, and congrats on that Nebula. I know it's old news now, but it's still very exciting. So... (laughs) Thank you. In We Are Satellites, you have sort of a body modification technology, which is something that has been a subject of interest to sci-fi writers for a very, very, very long time. Before we get like really stuck into it, I just kind of wanted to talk about, you know, what what are some of your favorite body mod texts and, and the stories that come out of them? Oh, there's so many. I think Nancy Cress's Beggars in Spain was one of the things that I thought of when I was thinking about this book. That's the the one in which uh, they modify sleep out of people, and and the people who don't sleep turn out to have like longer lives, and they 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 do more. They have higher intelligence, and they're more creative, and they have better attitudes towards life. There's all these th- uh, things that they go along with with being one of the sleepless. So, so I guess that one, that one sticks in my head. Does ancillary justice count? Ooh. I feel like it kind of does because the people are people, even if they're also connected in a weird Chips. hive mind ship yeah. thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'll allow it. <laughs> all right. Autonomous by Annalie Newitz. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. There's a whole lot of good ones that are pretty recent. I, I was also trying to think of Murderbot kind of counted. I have to sadly admit that that is still on my to-read list. I do desperately want to get to it, but uh, 
time. Time. There are so many books. Yeah, I mean, the, for me, the body mod tech, I always tend to think of the Borg. They feel like the kind of typical <laughs> body mod thing. Fair enough. Yeah. Well, that's quite interesting because I've been <laughs> I've been thinking of body mod, and again, the Borg came to me, or something horror related, because I'm definitely the horror guy, and. Um, Megan is definitely more on sci-fi. And you mentioned that you wrote horror, Sarah. And I just wondered, because We Are Satellites is is very grounded. It's very brilliant. It's, it is almost like the technology is just an advanced phone. Well, not an advanced phone, but it's something you could genuinely imagine in the near future. And I wondered with your sort of horror bent a little bit, whether you thought about really turning it into something horrible or whether it was like, no, I'm definitely just going to look at the society and the, the mental health and things like that. Was there ever another version of it that was like something really terrible and horror and stuff exploding out your brains and things like that? No, no, not this one. I, I, oh. uh, the, the horror stuff I write tends to be like really, like I know when something is going to be really dark uh, and, and this, this story never wanted to head that way. Um, I thought it was more interesting without I, I feel like I've I've read that story before you know the one the one where everything goes wrong and it's really bad it feels like the the more typical story to me I, I think I'm always drawn to the the story that is well this works for some people and it doesn't work for other people and yes, the motive is profit, but maybe it does bring something good, but also it brings bad things and, and like trying to see all the way around it. Yeah. I mean, and I can absolutely see the, the horror version that you could, that you could write. Like, absolutely. don't get me wrong. I think yeah. you're right. You could totally take this in a, in that direction. But, but I guess that just wasn't what I was interested in telling in this particular case. Well, I know what you mean, because when you start planning a story, you often, quite often had a, a concept or an image first. That's how I work. And then, like you say, you get a feel for it. Like, is this, uh, is the setting for this going to be a family story where you look at sort of families breaking down, coming back together, mixing all this kind of thing? Or is it something where it's just, you know, the beginning of the apocalypse and it's all going to be terrible? So how did you come about with We Are Satellites First? Did you come up with the idea of the the body mod, the pilot itself, or was it a case of the family or one of the characters? What was the first inspiring thing that you thought of? It was one concept and one image. Um, the concept came from, I, I actually started thinking about this years and years ago. I was working for an, an organization, uh, the, the Epilepsy Foundation, and I had, so my job was to answer information calls from people who had questions about epilepsy and to run support groups and find appropriate speakers to come in and talk to the support groups and um, find resources for people, stuff like that. And so I went to a lot of events, like doctors who were speaking to other doctors and that sort of thing, looking for speakers. And I was at a symposium for for epileptologists. So it was epilepsy doctors speaking to each other. And one of them was talking about brain devices that were in the pipeline already. And uh, she spoke kind of dismissively of one that they had hoped would work for epilepsy, but it turned out it didn't, but it would probably work for Parkinson's. And I was thinking at the time, you know, that was, that it would be very disappointing if you had hoped that this brain that this particular implant would come along and then it turned out it wasn't for you after all, but at least you could say, well, Hey, someone else is getting use out of it. And from there I thought of what if 
It turned out it didn't have any of these therapeutic uses, but they noticed a side effect of it that could be monetized. And and so I started going down that road of what what would happen, like how frustrating, first of all, would it be if you were the person who was waiting for that technology and it wasn't given to you and actually you're precluded from having it, but everyone else has it. And then moving, moving from there into the question of how would this technology be used uh, for profit and why would they? And so then I worked backwards and tried to figure out what the implant would do. Um, and then the other thing that happened was I was driving home from work right around that time and I was stopped at a light and a bunch of boys from the cross country team of, of one of the schools that was nearby were out running and there was a private school on one. Uh, sorry. If you're in Britain, these are backwards. I think <laughs> there, there were a bunch of boys from like a, a Catholic school on one side. And then there were boys from a, uh, from a public school on the other side and they were running across the street and one of them tripped in front of the car and another one just sort of reached over without looking and uh, helped his friend back up. And they, neither of them ever looked at each other and they just kept running. And that image of those boys running stayed with me. And that was where David came from. And I sort of built everything out from there. That's interesting. I, I like the idea of, you know, you building on something that, you know, could be in the pipeline potentially and like I've I've read things about you know implants and things to help people study and so so I really don't think it's that far-fetched <laughs> no no I mean they do use implants uh I mean there, there are all kinds of therapeutic implants now so so the question would be whether we would allow them to use one that would you know not be for a therapeutic thing it would be yeah to make something improved I say in quotes in some way. Do you think there are uh, different perspectives around body modifications that are like mental versus physical because certainly when I'm thinking back to a lot of the kind of classic sci-fi instances of body modification I tend to think of the kind of kids cartoon villains with mechanical arms that can turn into giant like <laughs> explosives or you know they, they have all these you know wicked things like that and you know as a kid I always wanted that although you know I think on another episode we have previously spoken about how it's problematic because a lot of those kinds of representations of physical changes are often associated with villains and so on and so forth but for me, I, you know, I always wanted the cool, like, oh, I want to do something to my body that like is cool and makes me be able to do something amazing that I could never do. But when it comes to our minds, I feel like there's, it's just, it's trickier. How did you go about like wanting to touch on those trickier aspects of it? And do you think that there's like something, you know, is there a, a, a change that we could make to the mind that would be too far? I think well, it's very tricky because the thing that we know about messing with brains is that any any change we make in the brain can have huge personality change. Like it can affect your personality, it can affect your senses. You know, all kinds of things can go wrong, and all kinds of things can just be altered. So, so I think you run the risk. 
of, you know, I, I guess part of the question is, would people be willing to take a risk like this if, if there was a risk of it changing your personality? And for, for some things, people are willing to do that. There have been implants for epilepsy that, that people have happily taken because um, in some cases they'll do something like warn you when your seizure is coming so that you can, you know, be in a safe place so that you don't have to live your life wondering when the next one is. Um, and some of those do bring personality changes, but in the trade-off, if that person wasn't feeling like their, their life was under their control, they may feel like they have more control and they're willing to trade whatever aspect that was. So I guess people are willing to make some of those trades. Would I be willing? I don't know. I don't know. It depends on the situation. I don't think I would do it voluntarily for a for-profit company that, that thought they had a good idea of what to do in the name of improvement. I'm very suspicious of in the name of improvement. So I think I might've left the question behind. <laughs> no, no, that totally works. You say that like you're, you're, you know, skeptical and, and cautious about these things. I mean, we do fear change and, and, you know, sometimes it's quite right to fear these things, you know, they might not have been properly tested. We don't, you know, who know, maybe it's, you know, as you say, when it's done by you know, companies just out for the biggest profit, they may hide side effects that uh, people wouldn't really be interested in. But why did you want to actually, because, you know, the whole novel is really kind of going deep into the kinds of the fears that we have, whether or not they're founded. And, you know, why did you specifically want to look at the, the fear around change and the fear around changing technology? I think that's one of the things that I come back to a lot. Like most writers have their themes and I think I think probably fear of change is one of mine. Like it, it sort of echoes with the song for a new day as well. The the character that I usually find my the easiest entryway through is usually the one who is being cautious about something. So I'll usually start out exploring an idea with the question, how could this go wrong? Which is usually where plot lives. And so if you start with the people who are suspicious and who have ideas of how it could go wrong, then you can also find the other ways that they didn't even think of. And then you can start looking for the things that could go right as well. Um, but I think I'm fascinated by brains and I'm fascinated by, by, you know, the ways, the things that we can manipulate. I'm, I'm fascinated by the fact that there are specific areas that are associated with specific things and that you can, I mean, for me, designing a, designing a brain implant that actually potentially could work was part of the fun that, that I could, that I had to place it somewhere that, that my friends who are neuroscientists wouldn't laugh at me, that I could only give it a purpose that, was small enough that they would approve of it. So I didn't want to make the big, like the, the obvious leap would be to something like, Oh, and you can literally do 10 things at once and you can, you know, and you can co communicate tel telepathically and you can get radio stations in your head. You know, there are all these things you can add in there. You can turn it into Google glass. You can, you can do all or whatever it is that Elon Musk wants to put in our heads. You can do all of that stuff. But at the end of the day, I wanted something that 
was was close enough to real that I could explore it in a way that people felt as real. I, I noticed that you've talked a bit about epilepsy and going to epilepsy conferences and that you have neuroscientist friends. Um, and also the pilot within your novel, it's a very near future technology rather than something otherworldly. It's something like you say you could almost see as being the next step in technology. Um, so I wondered how much of the detail do you need to get right um, and how realistic does it need to be when it is so close and also when you have friends who are neuroscientists? I love playing in that really, really near future realm. Uh, it got me in trouble with the song for a new day because I I managed to predict the pandemic, uh, which I didn't expect to actually happen. It was just one of those cases of asking the next question, asking the next question and, and getting to the place that made the most sense. You know, if you were creating a disease, how would, it, you know, and, and you ask those questions. And so... And I, I love playing in that near future realm because you can kind of draw people in. They can see it happening, and they can see they can see where your questions come from. Uh, I love reading like weird far future stuff and stuff set in space. But but um, in terms of the questions that I'm drawn to, and I like to poke at, they are often near future and fairly realistic. And I think part of the trick is from my perspective, not to describe it too much. So I would prefer not to, like, I don't give a whole lot of details. Um, I think in the book, I tell you where in the brain it's put and why, and that's pretty much it in terms of, of specifics. And, and I, there's more research behind that. Like I, I took a long time figuring out where exactly I wanted to put it. Um, but at the end of the day, I thought that was really the only relevant detail because the thing that matters is how the, the thing that matters to me as a writer is how people react to this thing that you're putting in their way. Um, so, so I guess for me, having a near future concept that is vague enough for, for my friends to sign off on and say, you know, this could work. That's enough for me in terms of, of getting the technology right. And I guess the other thing I did research was the, the way that those things are approved in the U S which was a huge eye opener because, you know, I expected actually to have more roadblocks thrown at me from that, that it would be, harder to to get to the point where where people were doing uh something something like this to their brains and and to be honest it's it's not that far a leap and again you can see like elon musk is planning on marketing something like this you know in the fairly near future and uh the the pathway for a device is so much easier than the pathway for a medication they they do let people do things with a relatively shocking amount of impunity. <laughs> I really liked how that was a, a sort of conclusive twist, I suppose. It wasn't a revealing twist, but it was a nice way to bring it all together at the end and to get the characters to the, the point where they wanted to be. I like this idea with the drugs and the devices and how they had different regulation and that was the key at the end of it. I thought that was that was very um, smart and concise. That was good. I like that bit. <laughs> and straight out of... Straight out of real life. Well, that's it, isn't it? Shockingly. (laughs) (laughs) Now, when I was reading this book, there was one bit that stood out for me. Uh, At the beginning of the book, Val, one of the mums, asks herself, 
What kind of society were they creating where kids voluntarily changed their brains to keep pace with all the input coming at them? And when I thought about it, I was thinking normally when we see technology being used, it's to augment humanity and Borg straight away. There we go. Um, and help us to break new boundaries. But I kind of felt that when we are satellites, humanity is almost rapidly inventing one aspect of new technology to try and keep up with everything else. So you have this brain modification so that you can talk to your kids and watch the news and scroll online and do all this thing. And I just, I thought that was such a unique aspect to take and a unique take. I wondered what inspired you to portray something, portray technology as something that is spiraling out of the control of humans who invented it and they then need to create more technology to keep up with it. Oh, th- thank you. Yeah, I I think, I mean, I look around me and I see that just because I feel like I, I don't have a day job anymore, but but like at the at the last one that I had, you know, they were they were constantly saying, okay, now we're going to jump to this platform instead. We're going to try this instead. We're going to do this. We're going to do this. And you were like kind of constantly learning new things in order for them to decide that that wasn't the new thing that you were going to use after all. And here comes another one instead. And, you know, even, even just in what, you know, how are we going to have meetings during this pandemic? Well, you know, learn Zoom, learn Discord, learn Slack, um, and, and then we'll, you know, roll the dice and see which one we're going to use today. And you may need to jump over to the other one. And oh, yeah, there's Microsoft, whatever as well. Um, and, and I do, I mean, I, I think, I think it is a little bit of a struggle as a as a human maybe that's just me personally <laughs> um keeping up with the platforms and keeping up with uh which social media platforms you're supposed to be on and maintaining the the um proper amount of you know public figurehood that you need to maintain to be a writer and and making you know taking the right pictures and saying the right things on twitter there there's a lot so so i just i feel like you can kind of turn all of that into something slightly science fictional by by saying how, how do you keep up the next step is well you're you're going to need to boost your brain a little well it's interesting you mentioned about social media because obviously I'm the the mother of the group I have my own little girl and I definitely felt like I was sympathizing a lot more with the mums than I was with the um with David and uh, Sophie and I kind of sometimes I kind of sometimes see Megan and Lucy as the ones who are just way out there with all of the social media stuff and I'm like God, how do they do that so I definitely felt for Val and Julie in your in your book I was like that's totally where I was coming from <laughs> Yeah, and and Val and Julie are different in themselves too, because because Val, like, I think Val is is the one who's probably closest to me in in her cautions, even though she's more cautious than me. But um, but I wanted to have that counterpoint in Julie, also in someone who genuinely did like the new technologies and was kind of into the idea. Um, I didn't want them both to be dragging behind. I think there would have been a risk of them. See, I, I didn't. I wanted to have a few ways to differentiate them as characters, and and also, I wanted there to be, since I had four people, I wanted sort of four distinct perspectives on the on the pilot. Yeah, and those perspectives work well because it it means that you kind of navigated around the, any kind of definitive decision about okay it's bad it's good it's you know you're you're presenting lots of different kind of perspectives on it and it makes it far more interesting i think than say if just 
You were there with everyone who was just all against all the time from beginning to end. <laughs> and it's, you know. Yeah. I mean, I mean, that always feels more realistic to me too, when you're dealing with near future stuff is there going to be people who like it and they're going to be people who dislike it. And they're going to be people who benefit from it financially or, or like, you know, literally in this case, like the pilot could genuinely work for you and help you out. But I, I wanted all of the, that, that whole range. I, I just, I just feel like painting something as all bad. You, you lose some of the nuances and a lot of the fun is in the nuance and and a lot of the, I guess I, I can turn that around. A lot of the nuances in the, the differences as well. It's like anything, you know, some of the the most terrible technologies that we have, you know, around warfare and lots of these things. Most of the, what kind of inventions or, or discoveries that actually made those possible were kind of invented for other things or thought about in different ways or learning how to blow someone up really far away actually gave us something else that could help. And I think that's something we need to remember is that technology itself is neither good or bad. It's gives us opportunities and it's about what we as human beings do with that technology to actually, that's the difference. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and I mean, you can see some of it even right now as we, so we all, you know, went indoors and we saw concerts and, and plays online all year long while we waited for things to open up again. And there's an interesting question now of, of, you know, what lessons do we learn from this? Do we just say, okay, now we can go back to normal? Or do we say there could be a new normal where we, where we acknowledge that there were things that were, that were better here. And all those concerts that you get to see that people have been doing online all year long. Well, that's how some people have to experience concerts either because they're immunosuppressed or because the venues in their area are not accessible for them or because there are no venues in their area, or because they have a kid at home and they have no babysitter, or, you know, there are all these reasons to keep those concerts, and there's reasons to keep the online aspects of science fiction conventions. And all the, all the conventions have been online all year long, and they can either jump straight back to, finally, we can see each other again, or they can jump back to some hybrid model that acknowledges that they got to bring people in who were not able to go previously because of the the changes they made. I mean, this brings us very nicely to, I mean, something that you've already mentioned, we, you had, you know, the working with epilepsy and, and that kind of being a, a sparking jumping off point for the novel itself. But something that you explore a lot in We Are Satellites is, you know, people being left behind with this new technology, you know, people who can't afford it, people who have different religious beliefs so that they are, you know, not going to take it on. And especially, you know, the neurodiverse who can't use it for one reason or another. And there's that, that fear of being left behind, I think is, is very real. And in, in a lot of countries, you know, we just, I think the, the question of being able to afford it is is very scary. But when it comes to sort of, you know, this idea of people being left behind and do you think that maybe there's a way of getting an interesting sci-fi story about this kind of change that 
doesn't end up distributed unequally <laughs> because obviously a good story needs the the kind of the tensions and all this sort of stuff but I don't know a part of me would just I guess love some sort of tech like this that somehow made things more equal or it really did improve things for everyone do you think that's even possible <laughs> I mean, I mean, sure, it's possible. Again, I mean, you did say, you did say the part where where you need plot. Uh, that's, I mean, that's the trouble with utopian novels too, is that you need, like, you need you need to find the grit somewhere. So if it's utopian, then you need to either uh, introduce an issue in your utopia, in which case maybe it isn't so utopian after all, or you know, the ones who walk away from Omalas, or or yeah, you have to find the you have to find it somewhere. So I guess I didn't conceive of this particular story in any other way, um, because because that was where I came, like literally where I started this. So I never would have approached this particular story in that way. But yes, I mean, so if you so just as a thought experiment here, so if if I wasn't looking at who could have it and at the un, uneven distribution. There's still other questions of how it works and should it work. And I don't know, I, f- I feel like it might get into a different kind of moralizing at that point. Like I would worry, I'm playing with other ideas in my head now and rejecting them. Um, I, I, don't know <laughs> I, I feel like uneven distribution is is such an important I feel like it's an important idea in our time in any case, because many people don't recognize that it's there. I think that's one of those things that isn't, you know, if if you talk about story tropes and with body modification, maybe it is there in, in a lot of them. Some people will have it, some people won't, but in general question, like uneven economic distribution is an idea that I think is is probably still worth hitting, even if it's not uneven uneven distribution due to you know neurological questions. Does that make sense? Oh yeah, totally. I mean, I was thinking about what you said about utopias and how it would be something similar if everybody had it, and it made me think of Star Trek Next Gen, where you've got Geordie LaForge who has issues with his eyes, and just as a matter of course, just gets a visor, and it doesn't—it's not a central plot point. It is just something he has that he wanders around with, and you see other characters turning up with other modifications. I'm sure that Megan will have a far better knowledge of it than I do, but it, it's just just one of those things, isn't it? It's, and the story never revolves around the mods. It's it, it helps them out in some situations, it draws them back in others, but it's never about the mods that they have. Am I remembering correctly, though? I think that there was one episode where, where maybe Q fixed, like I'm going to say in quotes, fixed Jordy's eyes, and Jordy rejected it. Yes, absolutely. But again, it was it was like this idea. It was just one small bit, and it was I don't know. I just I was just trying to think of this idea of conflict and where it would come in from. And I was thinking right. the only way that you could get conflict if everybody had the equal was equal in the way they had it so like for example the whole human race had access to it i guess what you're then looking at is an alien race like you were sort of talking about with q and different things it's like is that where the conflict comes from and yeah it just 
I don't know. I a bit like you. I'm not quite sure where this is going. There's so many different ideas about what this could be, but it, it, I don't know if it would make a a really good sci-fi novel or if it would just be completely different and be something like Star Trek, where the focus isn't on the mods; it's on all the other bits that the people with the mods do. Right, and and I think I mean I'm I'm a fan in general of of putting of making certain things not an issue. So there were a few things that I didn't want to be an issue in this story, including I didn't want, I didn't want it to be an issue that, that Sophie was adopted. I didn't want it to be an issue that the, the parents are queer. Like I didn't want it to revolve, you know, there, there to be like homophobia was a non-issue as far as this story was concerned. And I didn't want, while they were looking for ways to, make Sophie have fewer seizures. Like ultimately no one was, I didn't want it to revolve around any, uh, particularly I didn't want anything to revolve around a magic fix for her or anything that, or her uh, disability saving the day somehow. So, so I think that some of those questions, like as you take some of those things off the table as well, either because those things are done or because those things are tired, or because that isn't that isn't this an appropriate story to tell. Um, so, so there are a whole lot of things that come off the table because I'm not interested in telling stories that that do that to the people who who are in those positions in real life. Um, so, I think the other question when you write something like this is how do you approach it in a way that's as sensitive as possible to the people you may be coming close to who are real people. Yeah, completely. I mean, the thing is, you know, as as Charlotte sort of thought about, you know, if it was something like Star Trek, Star Trek, you get the the aliens coming in and affecting things. But then again, it just turns into ultimately the story about the foreigners, basically, or the people who are different. And it's very, you know, as you say, we, we get a lot of these stories in sci-fi, which is is frustrating in a sense because ultimately I like we don't want to really be focusing on why everyone is different in a kind of negative light. Yes, we are all different in wonderful ways, but we're also very much the same and and when you have anyone whether you know being picked on for or, or being left behind for anything that makes them, you know, different in inverted commas, uh it's it can be, yeah, tricky <laughs> to put it mildly. Yeah, and you you don't. I mean, I think there are plenty of differences that our society already creates, and there's plenty of room to look at. And, and some of those discrepancies are very worth shining a light on. Like I, I, I feel like for all the things that I took off the table, I, I do. I do think that. Uh, like economic disparities and and who who gets and the fact that new technologies are not evenly distributed are really important to tell i I mean right down to again i'll come back to the pandemic but um down to when you when you bring everyone home and say everyone has to you know work from home and go to school from home uh you know some some schools were able to do uh, to to give everyone an iPad and some schools aren't and and some schools are able to and some families are able to have someone who's helping the 
the six-year-old get online and some families, the parents are not able to do that. You know, there's, everything is already hugely unevenly distributed. In in a near future story, I think if you don't acknowledge that, if you just say everyone gets this, I think that's that's where the the big divergence from reality would occur because you can't just, I mean, I, I think I, and I did hand wave a little bit with the, not, not, um, because I thought it would be realistic to say if they want some of these people for the army, then they are going to subsidize it for, for lower income people. So I, I did have a very strong reason that I wanted to, to, to give it to, to find ways that they would end up in the hands of, of people who couldn't necessarily afford them. They wanted it to be everywhere and their, their business plan involved ubiquity, which made sense, which made sense to me. But most technologies are very much evenly, unevenly distributed. Um, And most everything is education is unevenly distributed. Wealth is unevenly distributed. We are all, we know, I mean, I'm not saying anything new in saying that, but, but I think that if you ignore those things in your near future science fiction, then you can't paint a realistic picture. No, I completely agree. And also I, I thought it worked really well with the army because, you know, like I sort of mentioned, it's, when new tech comes around, it seems to just be human nature that we start thinking about how we can use that to hurt other people in warfare and other things like that. And, you know, it's it's very sad, but it is very accurate. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I feel like each aspect that you that you add in there, like it does come around to like, what would people do for profit? And usually we'll do everything for profit. Um, the, the, we of the larger human race, not the individuals. Yeah. And, uh, just generally, I feel like tech companies are, you know, catching up to pharmaceutical companies in. <laughs> right. And they're kind of, well, and yeah. like Google used to have that. What was the, their, catchphrase was something like don't be evil and they like slowly got rid of it i think it was don't be evil it was something like that but but (laughs) yeah the um the and the other thing with the tech companies is that and and a lot of companies have ethics officers right there are people who are hired to to look at the ethics of what they're doing but then the question is will the company listen to that person and particularly, will the company listen to that person if what that person says is we can't do this when everything has been geared towards that profit? And and if you've put, you know, millions of dollars into research for, a, you know, a device or a pill or or whatever, or, you know, or a new technology and you have and you have you're about to, you know, take it to the public and someone says, wait, have we thought of this? You know, are you going to genuinely throw the break or are you going to look for ways to mitigate whatever that was that that they said was going to be a problem? You know, it's like, I don't know, for some reason I'm picturing the 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 fairies in sleeping beauty all of a sudden where um where like one of the, where one of them you know makes the curse and then there is the one who shows up later and says well i can't get rid of it entirely but i can make it a little better i feel like that's 
that's where they end up with some of these things where, where it's, you know, that's the ethics officer may be saying, whoa, slow down. Um, you know, did we think about the fact that we're going to be changing the way that people think we're going to be altering and whatever that, you know, whatever the thing is, this device may mess up people's knees. Um, but on the other hand, maybe their femurs will get stronger. Um, you know, they're, they're going to try to come up with some excuse to, to fix the, to, to patch it instead of get rid of it entirely because they've put so much money into it and they can see this profit tantalizingly in front of them. They're not going to just turn away at that point. Yeah. It's, it's like, I always have this fear that, which is probably like, you know, getting into crazy conspiracies, but like, I'm, I just think that pharmaceutical companies, they're never, or, or medical kind of advancements that, you know, they don't actually want to cure things. They just want to find medications and things that they can keep selling you to keep it under control. Mm -hmm. And I just like worry sometimes. I'm like, what if they actually could have just eradicated some of these things by now, but because the profit in the the drugs is too much that they're not going to do it. And then, yeah, I, (laughs) but I, that way lies danger. I did <laughs> yeah. not think about that. <laughs> I was really interested in what you were saying about um, trying to patch things. So the company involved with the pilots doesn't try and fix the problem. It tries and, and gets David to patch the issues like short exercises, breathing techniques, and obviously there's the issue of numbing the pain with drugs and alcohol. But most importantly, when David tries to express what he's feeling and, and how everything has gone wrong, he is pretty much disbelieved. Um, and even though there are obviously quite a few people, as we find out later in the novel, who experience the same things, he feels very isolated. He feels that the doctors aren't taking him seriously. And it kind of struck uh, me and I when we were reading this that it really does sound a bit like the experience of particularly people with mental health issues where there's no physical symptoms really. And also women tend to have female problems that they try and explain to doctors, men and women, and they don't always understand because it's it's always quite abstract and it's you can't always pinpoint it. So I wondered if that was part of, in your mind when you were writing the character of David, and if there was a, a reason why perhaps David, rather than um, a woman, was the one who went trying to seek help and being disbelieved, whether it was to shine light on this inequality uh, between doctors and patients. Yeah, that that is definitely a problem where where people are constantly disbelieved, and definitely happens more to to women than men. I've I've heard many horror stories, and you know David was always David. Like I said, he was he was this picture that I had in my mind from the very beginning, and I knew that I wanted that to be part of this. And he he was the one that it made sense for. It, It it didn't make sense to me for it to be. Julie, because I wanted hers to work for her. Uh, I wanted her to be the one with with sort of the perfect experience of it. And with David, it's a you know it's a little tragic because he he it wasn't that he wanted it because he wanted because he was excited about it. He wanted it just because he felt like he was being left behind, which is a very I thought was was the most realistic way for people to get into this at the beginning was was any anyone who's been around teenagers knows you know if you have if if someone has something and others don't have it, then, you know, that kid is going to want it too. So he just wanted to keep up with his friends and not be different. Um, and instead he did end up with the different experience of it. 
if he was the one who it was going to happen to, it was him. It happens to women a lot more than men in real life. But, but I think in terms of mental health questions, it's such a, you know, it's such a, you can't, you have to put into words whatever is happening in your head and the other person has to, the doctor has to come at it from, from the perspective of trying to understand and trying to believe. And if they're not in the position to do that, if they don't have enough time to listen to you, or if they don't understand what you're saying, there's a very real risk of being dismissed. And most doctors have, you know, what, like 20 seconds that they're allowed to spend with you and listen. So, so I, th- I think there's a lot of pressure on, on doctors to make quick diagnoses and quick assessments and of the situation, whether they believe the person, whether they think that they're exaggerating, whether, whether they're looking for something from them. And I think they get it wrong more often than we talk about. Could it have been a woman? Yes, uh, it was. It was David, but um, I did definitely want to to also shine a light on that a little bit because I think it happens constantly. And you know, most most women you talk to will probably have a story about a time that they approached a doctor about something and and it didn't go the way they expected. Yeah, I I really liked it in the novel where you sort of talk about how David calls it noise, and you know when Sophie talks to other people, she's like, oh, someone called it this and and that. And maybe that's what David means by that. And, you know, it's that kind of trying to find an understandable way to communicate something that is a very personal thing that you can't actually share. You can't share that experience. So you have to find language that describes it to other people. Um, and I think that was captured very well. Um, yeah. And as someone who has battled many doctors who don't believe me or don't understand what I'm talking about with many different health issues over the years, um, it felt very, very relatable. Um, Thank you. So. Yeah, and, and then there's the aspect of shame as well, like where people feel that like even if you get yourself to, to the doctor or to, you know, or if you're trying to talk to a friend or a parent or or whatever, trying to put those, like to articulate something when you're afraid that what they're going to say is, you know, when you're afraid they will be dismissive. No, completely. As a a sufferer of endometriosis, like that thing of, well, maybe, maybe my periods are just as painful as everyone else. And maybe I just, you know, have really low pain tolerance. Maybe I just, maybe I do need to just like suck it up and be okay. You know, it's, it's, it's very easy to get into that and to start even doubting yourself. So yeah, I completely get it. And, and yeah, David's whole, whole struggle of like, well, what's wrong with me? What's, why am I having this thing or other people having it and just not caring or like, yeah, it's, it, it definitely, you know, yeah, I could really see that, that struggle yeah. of, of, and, and our society does uh, stigmatize a lot of these discussions. Like, like we're we're not, you know, maybe if we were all used to having those discussions, so that you know it would be normal to talk about your period or to talk about your mental health. If all of that was normalized, then then people might have a a, a safer base to start from, or more knowledge to start from, to know what other people's baseline is, so they can look at theirs comparatively. I absolutely agree. (laughs) But I think that is all we have time for. And thank you so, so much for joining us. It's been really wonderful. My pleasure. Thank you for having me.
And please keep coming up with uh, really interesting near future sci-fi because uh, we are big fans and we really enjoy reading them. So more please. (laughs) Awesome. Thank you. Breaking the Glass Slipper is written and produced by Megan Lee, Charlotte Bond and Lucy Hounsom. Please help us spread the word. Subscribe and leave a review on your preferred podcast platform. We want to hear from you. Let us know what you would like to hear on the next episode of Breaking the Glass Slipper.